There is a tendency to conceive of reality in Western liberal democracies in terms of binaries and dualisms. And certainly the idea of freedom as standing at the core of, of such societies, the free world, rests on um, past, present, and uh, or traditional modern dualisms, with um, modern liberal society imagined as representing a radical break from all that went before. And the, the freedom-slavery binary maps onto that with um, modern liberal citizens imagined as the opposite of slaves and the modern liberal state as the guarantor of their rights and freedoms. And obviously forced and free migration, or forced and voluntary migration, provides another important binary, uh, this time imagined in relation to um, outsiders or non-citizens. And over the past two decades, it seems that those two binaries have, have come to overlap more and more in the sense that one sort of forced migration, um, i.e. trafficking, is increasingly described as modern slavery. So you've really seen recently uh, a, a revival of the anti-slavery movement and anti-slavery activism around that in recent years. And of course, uh, Theresa May last August nailed her colours to the contemporary abolitionist mast. She announced her intention to introduce a modern slavery bill aimed at strengthening existing anti-trafficking law and thereby eradicating an evil in our midst. She said her concern was that the slave trade had not really been abolished, it's just changed its form. People are still bought and sold in coffee bars at Heathrow Airport then sent to work in Norwich farms and Soho nail bars. And mainstream modern abolitionist organisations like Free the Slaves, Not for Sale, the Walk Free Foundation, speak of an estimated 29.8 million slaves around the world today, slaves that include but are not limited to victims of trafficking. And Obviously, their campaigns attract great public interest and support. And their campaigns also rest on the assumption that modern slavery can be distinguished from and prioritised over and above other forms of rightlessness, exploitation and oppression in the contemporary world. But one of the things that troubles me about this is, is what exactly they mean by the term slavery, what is modern slavery. And according to Kevin Bales, slavery today takes many forms, forms that differ according to the cultural, religious, social, political, ethnic, commercial and psychological influences and combinations of these influences. But he still nonetheless, while saying that there's much diversity, he also says that there is a key and central attribute that the core of slavery is the condition of potentially violent control of one person by another. And he and other modern slavery activists argue that slavery is always characterised by three essential elements. Involuntariness, he says, in the sense that the slave cannot walk away from the situation they're in and someone's controlling their free will. Severe economic exploitation, which he describes as the absence of a wage 
or payment of wages in a form that only covers the most basic necessities for daily survival or that can be clawed back by an employer. And then thirdly, violence or the prospect of violence. And he and other anti-slavery activists very much insist that new slavery is quite different from more ordinary forms of drudgery and oppression that you see around you. He has a quote where he says, having just enough money to get by, receiving wages that barely keep you alive, may be called wage slavery, but it is not slavery. Sharecroppers have a hard life, but they are not slaves. Child labour is terrible, but it's not necessarily slavery. So he's saying it's different from other forms of misery in the contemporary world. And he also says that it differs from what has traditionally been understood as, as slavery in various senses. So he says that unlike chattel slavery, such as in systems like the transatlantic slave trade, he says modern slavery is not a condition that's linked to an excluded legal or political status. It's not necessarily a permanent condition. He argues that new slavery has been come into being because of rapid population growth, poverty and government corruption. And he says those factors have combined to produce an absolute glut of potential slaves. And he says this glut has reduced the pr price of slaves and made slaves essentially disposable. He says today's slaves cost so little that it's not worth the hassle of securing permanent legal ownership. And so he has a chart where he summarises those as the key difference that in past legal ownership was asserted, today it's avoided, and so on. But nevertheless, even though he's stressing this difference between historically chattel slavery, historically and modern slavery now, he says that the core remains really the same thing, that real slavery involves the use or threat of violence and the total control of one person by another for purposes of exploitation. I could spend hours and hours criticising all the assumptions that he makes to, to produce this model, but today I just want to flag up the fact that what are identified as the key criteria for judging whether or not something is or isn't modern slavery are applied selectively by modern abolitionists. So although the core of slavery is defined by modern abolitionists as the condition of potentially violent control of one person by another, <coughs> mainstream abolitionists make exceptions where that control is exercised by state actors, at least state actors in liberal democratic states. And I think that exclusion clause is particularly visible and telling in relation to immigration, detention and deportation. So if immigration detention refers to the deprivation of liberty of non-citizens under aliens legislation because of their status, and though it's not new, it's today being used on an unprecedented scale, I found a figure that said that uh, almost 29,000 people were held in detention solely under Immigration Act powers in 2012 in the UK. So it's, it's interesting to ask 
are immigration detainees modern slaves? And of course, they actually meet the mainstream abolitionist criteria of involuntariness. They didn't choose, and they certainly can't walk away from the situation they're in. And they're also under the potentially violent control of those who hold them. So in Canada, for example, Warlier and Tagore say, detainees are held in secure facilities with surveillance cameras, guards, and metal detectors. The holding centers are equipped with segregation units and solitary confinement for detainees deemed uncooperative. Long-term confinement of those labeled uncooperative is often the result of detainees refusing to sign the papers necessary to secure travel documents for their deportation. Thus, refusing to be complicit in one's own deportation results in further punishment. Prohibitive rules abound. Shackles, handcuffs and leg irons are standard protocols for transportation. And there are other ways where you could look at the experience of immigration detainees in affluent liberal democracies and say that it, it has strong echoes of old slavery. Orlando Patterson, who famously talked about slavery as social death, said that one of the things that distinguished the slave's experience was natal alienation. The slave was denied all claims on and obligations to his parents and living blood relations. And by extension, all such claims and obligations on his more remote ancestors and his descendants. And Patterson's argument is slaves were socially dead. They were isolated from their social heritage, but also from their social relations with the living. They were alienated from all rights or claims of birth, not belonging in their own right to any legitimate social order. So that's one aspect that he talked about. A second aspect was the chronic, inalienable dishonour of the slave. And he talks about how a slave was a human being degraded because they were without the means to achieve the power that's necessary to defend a sense of honour. And again, you know, you can see echoes of that in immigration detention that Detainees are frequently held in remote and isolated locations, often moved between such locations without warning, making it difficult for their families, friends and lawyers to maintain contact with them. And the effects of that kind of dispersal policy are to alienate the detainee from <coughs> her or his community, family, support networks. And then, obviously, there are ways in which detention and deportation can lead to separation from one's children, sometimes permanent separation from children and family, just as being sold historically implied that kind of um, family separation. Immigration detainees are also often depersonalised in ways that resonate with the historical experience of the enslaved. So in addition to being manacled and uh, moved about against their will, Mounts notes that in the United States, an alien number, or an A number, is assigned to every detainee from the time of detention to release or eventual deportation. All visits, information, telephone calls, which are centralised, and mail are dependent on this A number, making the number the key to identification and location. Yet this number is neither publicly available nor readily released by the detention centre staff. And I mean, I suppose that's one example, but there are many other examples of uh, practices 
which lead detainees to speak of feeling degraded, feeling dehumanised, feeling dishonoured by their experience of detention. Obviously, the, the labour of immigration detainees may not be exploited, so I think how can the, the criteria of exploitation be applied? But actually depriving non-citizens of their liberty is an activity that generates significant profits for the many <coughs> private companies that are involved in the provision of security services and the construction and management of immigration detention centres. So migrants' rights organisations estimate profits of $5 billion per year in the US alone. And in the context of, of high demand generated by the crackdown on illegal immigration under the Bush regime from 2004 on, Corrections Corporation of America, which is the US's largest private prison company, has been able to charge as much as $95 per detainee per day in some of its facilities. In Britain too, the management of detention centres as well as prisons is increasingly being outsourced to global private security companies like G4S and Serco. And in fact, private security firms have come to dominate detention, transport and escort services for irregular migrants <coughs> and asylum seekers. And as everybody also knows there have been many complaints lodged against private companies for assault and, and then that recent case of the Canadian man who died in handcuffs um, and so on. So I mean you could look at this and say well without bodies to hold and to process there would be no profit for these private companies to secure so that although immigration detainees are not a source of unpaid labour power. Um, they could be argued as functioning as the sort of raw materials of this labour process, um, and therefore you could argue that they are, in that sense, subject to severe economic exploitation. But the economic value that's extracted from immigration detainees and the restraints on their rights and freedoms are not a focus of attention for mainstream modern abolitionists. In, in fact, rather than questioning the increasing strengthening of immigration controls and the militarization of borders and tighter, more restrictive immigration regimes, some mainstream abolitionists actually called for tougher border controls on grounds that those measures <coughs> will help to lead to the apprehension of traffickers and help to end the slave trade. But if you think that Bales defines slavery as a relationship in which one person is controlled by violence, through violence, the threat of violence or psychological coercion, has lost free will and free movement, is exploited economically and paid nothing beyond subsistence. But when a relationship like that is forged by um, and, and governed by a, a liberal democratic state, it, it doesn't seem to count for him as modern slavery. So I wanted to think a bit about why that would not be visible to anti-slavery activists as slavery, because bear in mind that chattel slavery is 
illegals is outlawed everywhere in the world. So none of the people amongst these 28.9 million that they're talking of are actually held in chattel slavery. So they're, they're looking at uh, people who are not legally defined as slaves and saying the, these ones are modern slaves. So it's interesting to wonder why, in that case, immigration de detainees wouldn't count for them. And that makes me return to Bales's old new slavery model to think about what perhaps is missing from it, or one of the many things that are missing from it. If you look at slavery historically, for instance, the transatlantic slave trade, and focus just on the um, extraordinarily vicious practices that were employed by individual slaveholders in an effort to force slaves to comply with their will, then Bales's assertion that the key and central attribute, the core of slavery, has always been the condition of potentially violent control of one person by another. That looks pretty apt. Um, but actually, if you interrogate further the question of what led most slaves, but not all slaves, but what led most slaves to comply with the will of their owners, then actually the factors that lie behind that violent control begin to look more important. If you look at the, the narrative of Oladar Echiano, one of the earliest abolitionists, um, who wrote an account of his own experience as a slave, you find actually he was not always subject to the direct or violent control of his masters. And in fact, he actually employed his freedoms um, to engage in quite profitable, relatively profitable trading activities. But because he was in law a slave, his property rights in goods and money were not protected in law. And his narrative is, is littered with examples in which white people cheated or robbed him of the stock that he had managed to accumulate, um, as well as with many instances of just random, brutal assault by white strangers. And these were all acts against which he, as a slave, and even later on as a freed black man, had no redress in law. And Orlando Patterson, in his account of slavery's social death, argues that you can't define uh, slavery simply in relation to notions of property and forced labour. He says slaves were not distinguished from all non-slaves by the fact that they were legally and socially imagined as the object of property. He says rather the slave was a slave because he could not be the subject of property. And it was that that meant that the slave was a person without power. Um, and you know, as I've already mentioned, Patterson said also you, you have to think about slavery as distinguished by natal alienation and by dishonour. And all of that adds up to much more than merely existing in a condition of potentially violent control by another person. It implies existing as a human being who is neither physically dead nor socially alive, being a person who can think, who feels, who can work, who can have children, who can love just like other people, and yet is denied all recognition as, as a person, and being connected to other people and to the society in which they live only through their master. Frederick Douglass put it in a speech in 1850, 
he said that the corollary to the master who claims and exercises a right of property in the person of a fellow man is the slave who is a, a human being divested of all rights, reduced to the level of a brute, a mere chattel in the eye of the law. In law, the slave has no wife, no children, no country and no home. He can own nothing, possess nothing, acquire nothing. Um, and so you can look and think, actually, in, in transatlantic slavery, the legal erasure of all aspects of the slave's humanity bar criminal culpability, that was what provided the background relation to the background relation of control implied by ownership. Because without that, owners could not have so easily kept slaves in a condition of potentially violent control. Uh, because the fact, or even the belief, that some form of legal right or protection was available would undoubtedly have shifted the balance in, in slaves' deliberation as regards whether or not to comply with orders. Uh, Patterson puts it, he says, uh, the master-slave relationship cannot be divorced from the distribution of power throughout the wider society in which both master and slave find themselves. You know, really that's about thinking that it, it would be one thing to be held in a condition of potentially violent control by an individual who snatched and imprisoned you, and yet to know that if you could only just manage to escape, that you're going to be offered assistance and protection. But it's quite another thing to imagine being in the same condition in a society where the power of the person controlling you is backed up by the full weight of the law and the full might of the state. And Douglas's account of his reflections when he was contemplating a, what was ultimately an unsuccessful plan to escape with a number of his fellow slaves, I think gives an insight into what, what that latter condition implies. He said, our path was beset with the greatest obstacles, and if we succeeded in gaining the end of it, our right to be free was yet questionable. We were yet liable to be returned to bondage. Our knowledge of the North did not extend farther than New York, and to go there and be forever harassed with the frightful liability of being returned to slavery, with the certainty of being treated tenfold worse than before, the thought was truly a horrible one, and one which it was not easy to overcome. At every gate through which we were to pass we saw a watchman, at every ferry a guard, on every bridge a sentinel, and in every wood a patrol. We were hemmed in on every side. On the one hand there stood slavery, a stern reality, on the other stood a doubtful freedom. Upon either side we saw grim death, assuming the most horrid shapes. Now it was starvation, causing us to eat our own flesh. Now we were contending with the waves and were drowned. Now we were overtaken and torn to pieces by the fangs of terrible bloodhounds. And I think, you know, it's small wonder that if you put that in that context, it's small wonder that most slaves chose compliance with their master's demands. But it seems to me it's equally very curious that in Bales's sketch of, of old slavery in the American South, the state's role in constructing and maintaining this terrifying and unyielding edifice that hemmed human beings in on every side, forcing them into dependency on their legal owners, that is really almost entirely invisible, apart from just a brief mention that he gives of the fact that ownership was legally asserted. It seems to me that in, in seeking to isolate the core essential features of slavery, 
Bales and other contemporary abolitionists treat certain identifiable elements of uh, the historical experience of certain slaves as if you can abstract them from each other and from any specific historical context. So he says it's a simple yet potent truth that slavery is a relationship between at least two people. But when you look at actual historical examples of slavery, it becomes clear that slavery was relational not merely in the sense that it implied a particular kind of relationship between the individual slave and the individual master, but also in the sense that it placed the slave in a particular position in relation to the community or society as a whole. That slaves may have been <coughs> held as private property under transatlantic slavery, for instance, but as slave narratives and a mass of other historical evidence shows that that doesn't mean that slavery was a private matter. It was very much a public, social and political one. So to return to the present, Kopitov, Igor Kopitov has remarked that um, although liberal theory positions liberty and slavery as oppositional categories, History suggests that ethnographically, the opposite of slavery in most societies has not been some notion of autonomy, but rather of citizenship, civic belongingness, of attachment to structure rather than detachment from it. And certainly, as I started out by saying, in liberal democratic states, free and equal citizens have long been imagined as being the opposite of slaves. But Many groups of migrants, especially irregular migrants in liberal democracies, are subject to an exclusion clause. They're frequently subject to state practices that, if they were applied to propertied citizens, would be regarded by liberals as tyranny. Because in addition to the restrictions placed on immigration detainees, migrants can be subject to forced destitution, forced separation from children, denied access to health care, housing, etc. And citizen and non-citizen and all the different immigration statuses that are afforded to different foreigners are, are just that, legal statuses, statuses given by the state, which express a human being's relation to the state and its vast and complex machinery that differentially allocates our access to virtually every single thing we need in order to be free in order to exercise any meaningful right or freedom. It differentially allocates our access to the labour market, to education, to healthcare, through to whether or not we can drive a car, take part in a, a public demonstration without fear that we'll be detained, through to our actual physical liberty, whether we can be arbitrarily detained, handcuffed, forced onto planes, and so on. And it seems to me that if you have no legal status, you're in a position very similar to Douglas, as you seek to live your daily life. You know, in that phrase that he has about at every gate through which we were to pass, we saw a watchman and so on, we were hemmed in on every side, captures it quite well. And Douglas was in that position because he was ascribed by the state the status of slave. And today, those who have fallen foul of immigration law are in that position because they're ascribed the status of illegality. And the relationship between what people describe as victims of traffickers and those who exploit them 
the evil slave drivers that Theresa May is very fond of talking about, just as much as the slaveholders in the southern states of America historically, you can't divorce that from the distribution of power throughout the wider society in which they find themselves. And our government is as complicit in constructing and ordering these background conditions as was any slave state in antebellum America. I'm not actually arguing for immigration detainees to be included in talk of modern slavery or added to the list of modern slaves because I actually think it's quite unhelpful to speak of modern slavery as something actual existent in that way. I think it, it's better to use the concept of uh, slavery figuratively to illuminate similarities between any particular contemporary phenomenon that you're concerned with and slavery historically. But I do think it's important nonetheless to examine those parallels because it helps you to understand, I think, that our government's interest in combating trafficking and modern slavery is not necessarily quite as it, it may at first appear. Because if we ask ourselves what's, what it is that's hateful about trafficking and modern slavery to the liberal democratic state, the answer, I think, is not its foundation in poverty or in global inequality. The people that are sent to work in Norwich farms and Soho nail bars are the poor of other countries. Um, and it's not their poverty that's seen as hateful. You know, obviously, in fact, our government wants to send them home to it. Uh, nor is it the exploitation of workers who are unable to walk away from an employer without facing serious repercussions because many of the government's own visa and work permit schemes are designed to prevent migrant workers from moving freely in the labour market. And what's hateful about it can't be the idea that any human being under any circumstance should be moved or held against their will or placed in a condition of potentially violent control because all of that is considered quite acceptable in the case of immigration detention. It seems to me that what's really wrong with modern slavery through the eyes of Mrs May and her like is the problem that Alain Testard has discussed in, in an article on, on debt slavery. Debt slavery, he said, facilitates the emergence of multiple power centres. And when those centres emerge within the social fabric and are beyond state control, they can eventually undermine or destroy it. Victims of trafficking are, in theory, controlled and exploited on the territory of the liberal democratic state by private individuals who are also usually imagined as being foreign organised criminals. And their power and influence is enhanced. They pay no taxes and owe no loyalty to the state. And it seems to me that although much of the political rhetoric about trafficking takes the form of indignation about the violation of victims' human rights, it has actually been primarily framed by states as a threat to state sovereignty and security. And that has been the main focus through the convention, through the trafficking protocol and so I suppose to conclude on, on those points is, is simply to say that 
in seeking to draw this hard and fast line between modern slavery and other forms of rightlessness and exploitation and domination, or to draw a line between the coercive power of physical violence and coercive power of, of structural violence, or between violence and constraints employed by private individuals on the one hand and violence um, and constraints imposed by democratic states on the other. I would argue that mainstream modern abolitionism is, is continuing a tradition of emancipation propaganda, which Wood describes as supplying the symbolic vocabularies um, that can be used by any powerful nation state when it wishes to paint over the horrible things it's done in the brilliant brush strokes of the gift of freedom. So it continues a, a tradition of liberal thought within which changes to the form of servitude and to forms of racial subjection are presented as, as liberation. As you mentioned the go home thing. I've been very struck by the fact that when um, Theresa May uh, announced her modern slavery bill, it was at exactly the same moment that the Home Office was launching their go home campaign. And I was thinking about it, it's quite interesting because actually the government does also want to send slaves home, so a lot of their, um, their materials on victims of trafficking is all about how you, you, know, you, you get them to help you to prosecute someone and you give them their psychological assistance and so on, but then this is all as a, a kind of prelude to preparing them to be sent home. And I was just interested because, because I'm doing all this stuff on slavery, that actually which David Brian Davis has talked about a lot, about how the idea of sending slaves home is not actually a new one. He says that the idea of repatriation went back to, to 1715 with a Quaker called John Hepburn, who argued that before being emancipated, all slaves ought to be given a Christian education and then returned. But he, he talks about how that idea of return was it certainly in the, in the 18th century was not necessarily as it may appear to us now because he was saying that actually people at that stage were aware of, of white Christians who had been enslaved um, in other parts of, of Europe and the Middle East and who were actually wanting to return to Europe so that there were always sort of precedents of an emancipating return. But, um, but that then developed into a movement, so there was the American Colonization Society, which was wanting to send, which was urging free people of color in Philadelphia and New York City to give serious thought to the option of emigrating to Africa at the ACS's expense. And in the early years of that, there were many black leaders who were involved in that campaign, but then they gradually came to see it as a way of strengthening slavery by getting rid of free blacks, especially successful and educated black people who might provide a sort of a role model for slaves yearning for freedom. So, and they also, there's the, Sierra Leone is the, the example as a refuge for, for slaves freed during the American Civil War, uh, War of Independence. That, there are all these ambiguities around that because whilst it was presented as being that this was a marvellous thing, that actually large numbers of emancipated slaves taken to Britain after the American Revolution were not welcome in the white nation. 
which had actually tried to deport all blacks in the late 16th century and that even France was setting in measures in 1777 to bar the entry of black people into France and 1778 outlawing interracial marriage. I, I thought it was quite interesting that even early on you could see that there was that movement, but how it then linked into the idea of a nation, a racial idea of a nation, um, and an idea of cleansing the nation by sending slaves home has a sort of history as well, which I guess is showing a link between state building and race and migration.